Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of June 27th, 2016. We have a multi-guest show for you this week. First, we'll discuss Lionel Messi's alleged retirement from Argentina's national soccer team after its shock loss to Chile in the Copa America Centenario Final plus Euro 16 and sports Brexit. We'll do that with New York Times sports writer Sam Borden. Then we'll be joined by an NBA player agent, Doug Neustadt, to talk about the record number of international players taken in last week's draft, including his client, the fourth pick, Dragan Bender of Croatia. And finally, we're very excited to welcome to the show boxer Claressa Shields. The 21-year-old from Flint, Michigan, will be going for back-to-back Olympic gold medals in Rio, and she's the subject of a new documentary titled T-Rex. That's her nickname. Slate executive editor Josh Levine is out. I'm in Washington. Mike Pesca, a.k.a. the Ajuga Ceratops, is in Brooklyn. He's the host of Slade's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Hi, Mike. Is that a good dinosaur nickname for you? Would that I, be your choice? I used to be a brontosaurus, then I was told that didn't exist, so I became an apatosaurus. Then I was retroactively told I did exist, and so then I went with that one you said. Aguja uh, uh, Ceratops. What is Aguja? What does that mean? I don't know. I'm looking it up. Well, Maybe it's, it's a juga. Hold on. A juga. Sure yes, it it's, right. it's a triceratops with a yarmulke. It's a juga ceratops. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's an aguja ceratops. It's yeah. a aguja. Yeah. Okay. Aguja. Yeah. You're very guji. All right. On yeah. our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll discuss the National Hockey League's decision to award Las Vegas its first professional sports franchise and what other sports franchises should be in Las Vegas. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangupplus. That doesn't sound right. Why not? 
Agujaceratops. Sounds right to me. No, no, no. If I sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangup plus. Yeah, do it. I can, You'll see. I can sign up. I Don't can, question I can, I can. it. Go All for right. it. I'm doing it. All right. Argentina's men's national soccer team curb stomped the United States in the semifinals of the Copa America Centenario last week, but it lost to Chile in the final on Sunday night when, after a goalless 120 minutes, Lionel Messi sent his penalty into the 30th row of MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. Here's what he said afterward. Eh, perder tres seguidas la verdad que que es una lástima pero tiene que ser así no no se da y, y lo intentamos lo buscamos y, y ya está All right, I'm not sure if he said it in that clip, but he said that he's retiring from the national team. Messi is just 29 years old, but his team is now lost in three consecutive major tournament finals. And as he noted in that clip, four overall. I did hear that part. He's also had a historically rocky relationship with Argentina fans and with the country's corrupt and incompetent National Soccer Federation. Joining us from the Stade de France outside of Paris where he's covering the Euro 2016 tournament. It's Sam Borden of the New York Times. Hey, Sam. Hey, how's it going? Good. Full disclosure, we are talking with Sam before the two Monday Euro matches, Spain against Italy, which he's attending, and England versus Team Handball Power Iceland. But first, let's talk about Messi and Argentina. It was a crazy match. You probably didn't stay up all night to watch it. It was fast, rough, out of control, and then came the penalties I was heartbroken for Lionel Messi. You've watched a lot of Messi in Europe. What do you make of his international disappointments? And do you really think he'll retire or was this sort of post-match sadness? Well, I think uh, two things. One, I agree. I I was disappointed for him. I was in Brazil when they lost. He and Argentina lost uh, in the final to Germany. And I could see, you know, how crushed he was knowing that that opportunity, you know, not only for his own personal legacy, but also for the country winning in Brazil, you know, their neighbors, their rivals, that would have been, I think, an amazing experience. And I think, you know, the pressure that came out of that failure just ratcheted up year over year, uh, last year's Copa, this year's Copa. It's just been a lot for what is, at least in my opinion, you know, one of the greatest players in the history of the game and certainly the greatest of his generation. So I was sad that it didn't work out for him. In terms of the national team retirement, I think there's a couple of things that play there. One, the emotion of the evening, to be sure, but also, uh, you know, the Argentine Football Federation is a cesspool of corruption. Uh, two of the biggest um, uh, officials involved in sort of the international FIFA corruption scandal are from Argentina. One of them has passed away. Um, but, uh, you know, there's no question that that is uh, a difficult place to be a player. And I think Messi and some of the other star players that have made comments similar in terms of, you know, wanting to leave the national team are applying some pressure and making it clear that they're looking for some serious things to change. You know, I could see a possibility where Messi does sort of like a Tim Howard and sits out, uh, you know, a few months, a few games maybe, although they're in a, they're not in a great spot in qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, which continues this fall. So they kind of need him if he's going to be back. Um, but, you know, if you ask me right now, do I think we've seen the last of him in an Argentina jersey? I would say no, but I also wouldn't be surprised if we don't see him in one for a little while. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that there's definitely some pressure being applied here. After the match, Javier Mascherano, uh, Iguain, uh, a couple other players said that they might be done as well. And the dissatisfaction with the Federation is well-known and, and rampant. Uh, during the tournament, Messi wrote on Instagram when the Argentine national team's plane was delayed, once again, waiting on a plane to leave for our destination. What a disaster, the AFAR. My God. So this goes back years and and Messi sort of has this tangled relationship with Argentina generally. I mean, he left the country when he was a little boy to go to Camp Nou and train with Barcelona. Um, and there is that lingering resentment that gets brought up at every one of these big tournaments. No question. And I, you know, you've even seen there have been some Argentine journalists that have written, "Oh, he's really more Spanish now than he is uh, from our country." I mean, I think that there's no question that that relationship is you know, pretty difficult and pretty tough to, you know, sort of wrap your arms around. But I do think that, you know, beyond that, the way that the Argentine Federation has treated their players, there's a real sort of history uh, of Argentina and Brazil, too, for that matter, sending their team and their star players around the world to play friendlies and, you know, unusual or far away places for big paydays that, you know, presumably were, you know, locked up in the corruption, uh, you know, machinations that really sort of overtook that federation. And so I think that Messi and some of the players that you mentioned are just kind of taking the opportunity to really put the screws to the people that run the federation uh, and say, look, Another cycle is, you know, just about to begin in terms of the 2018 World Cup. It can't be the same. We can't go on like this. And I think that they, you know, they're disappointed. They lost, but they also realize that something needs to change. And this is one way for them to make, try to make that happen. Right. Um, I mean, the, the government stepped in in Argentina to, to, to take some control over the federation. I think FIFA just stepped yeah, in go- last week as well. FIFA, yeah. And you know you're in bad shape if FIFA is the one who's coming in and trying to <laughs> tell you that you're morally uh, you're morally bankrupt. All right, let's shift to the Euros, which you are covering. The round of 16 is kind of nuts. Germany, France, Spain, Italy, and England are on the right side of the bracket altogether. They're, we're down to four teams on the left. Poland is going to play Portugal, Wales against Belgium. None of those countries has ever made a Euro championship final. This is kind of cool. I agree. I agree. I think, you know, I was a bit skeptical from the beginning and still am of the expanded field for the Euros uh, going from uh, 16 teams now to uh, 24. Uh, to me, having two weeks of a group stage to cut eight teams seems a little bit unnecessary, but I think one of the, uh, you know, sort of the benefits or one of the results of having several third place teams uh, after group play make it to the knockout round is that it's a little difficult to predict where the, the brackets are going to fall. And like you said, it's a really, you know, a really unusual distribution. One side, I mean, I'm, I'm at this game uh, right now, Italy and Spain in the round of 16, which normally you would think of as a quarterfinal or semifinal kind of uh, match. But there's going to be games like this up and down this side of the bracket, while the other side is really sort of the newcomers. You know, I've jokingly called it sort of the B side of the bracket. But the bottom line is one of these teams is going to get a chance to make history. And to me, that is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, think back to Greece winning in 2008. That was incredibly cool, even if you didn't admire the soccer that was being played quite as much as you would have if the final were Germany, Spain, France, or some of the usual suspects. I think the tournament's energized by having the likes of Albania, which 20 years ago was recovering from decades of isolationist, repressive communist rule, and Northern Ireland and Iceland and Wales. Um, it, on the one hand, you know, it reflects European unity, but 
also what ails all of these cultures when they come together. I mean, this is Brexit week, of course. Um, you know, for all of the screaming in Europe about Muslim immigrants, you look at the lineups for Germany, Switzerland, France, multiple Muslim players on each. And yet, I was reading this piece on the Washington Post's website by Michael Miller. The tournament has been touched by racist behavior, rioting, terrorist threats before the event. I mean, it does reflect everything good and bad in Europe. No question. I think that, I mean, I live in France and, you know, the, the thing that I think a lot of people outside of Europe don't realize, uh, or maybe just not that they don't realize, but just don't sort of process, you know, sort of day to day the way that people over here do living here. It's that this is an incredibly tumultuous time, you know, in this continent, in this country in particular, even more so now with Brexit, you know, terrorism, immigration, uh, you know, the rise of right wing politics, all of this is folded up now in the day-to-day existence. And so obviously because football is such a, you know, a, a consistent theme through society across the continent, it, it's rolled up in that too. And I think everything you said, and I, you know, I thought that Washington Post article was very interesting. It touched on a lot of different issues that are very real. I mean, I, it's not to say that you know, there wouldn't have been um, racism or terrorism or violence, terrorism threats or violence between Russian fans and English fans in particular, if Brexit wasn't going on or if, you know, the November attacks here hadn't happened. But everything is on sort of a heightened edge right now. Uh, France is still in a state of emergency. I mean, people forget that, too. You know, we've been in a state of emergency over here since November, and that hasn't changed, you know, and there's a lot of sort of political ramifications to that as well. So I think that it is a very heightened atmosphere, and as you said, it's a little bit of a, a conflict or an odd juxtaposition because in many cases, fans are cheering for players on their team that they might otherwise be, you know, in a different context, wouldn't necessarily want to be in their country. Yeah, so many of the teams, not um, Russia, not Slovakia, but so many of the teams are multicultural and polyglot and not not what we think of purely as German or French, but of course, we're wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I find that, to me, I mean, as an American, I find that, fascinating and terrific. I think there is no question that not everybody feels that way. Certainly in France, there is a, you know, ongoing, I mean, for years, it's been this way, you know, divide amongst fans and, you know, just right everyday French people about where typical pure French versus uh, immigrant French versus, you know, the different departments, overseas departments that French, uh, France has, how that all fits together as one and how that should fit together going forward. And, it is, it is strange to read, you know, or hear from French fans great support and happiness for what the team, the national football team is doing. And then, you know, in the same breath or in the same conversation, serious discussions about, uh, you know, immigration, uh, integration, assimilation, and how all of those terms should fit together and, you know, in sort of the political atmosphere going forward. Right, right. The, I guess the attitude is, except for uh, Zinedine Zidane, he's one of the good ones. Could I just ask you, from, from watching from afar, are the Russian fans as horrible as they seem to me? You know, I think it's tough. I, you know, I, I've been to Russia several times, and I think that there is certainly a general, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard not to speak in generalizations. There is a general wariness of Westerners, there's no question. But at the same time, in the same way that oftentimes in, in America, you know, a, a few uh, evil-minded individuals can make a group look worse than it is, I, don't, I do think that it's a huge stretch to say all Russian fans are violent, all Russian fans hate English fans. 
I certainly met plenty of Russian fans at the Russia-Slovakia match who were disappointed by what, you know, other Russians had done in Marseille with the English fans and were angry that their team might be penalized for that. I think there's no question, again, like you said before, that, you know, the politics of the world are intertwined with, you know, the relations at this football tournament. And that's just an example. Russia and its relationship with the West doesn't just get swept under the rug because they're playing soccer. All of those feelings and emotions exist you know, for the players, but then even more so for the fans. And then we lose to Germany, of course. They looked pretty good yesterday. Yeah, I'm a fan of uh, Germany. I mean, I love what they did in the World Cup in Brazil. I thought they built very nicely into that tournament. They had a little bit of a hiccup, you know, just getting through the first knockout game. But to me, they were the class of that tournament, deserved to win. I was at the Brazil game where they just absolutely decimated Brazil. That was you know, perhaps the greatest game I've ever seen in person. Um, and I think that they are doing the same thing. They're building into this tournament. They're building their way up. Uh, you know, they're sort of cresting, and it seems a, a similar rise. You know, could they get beaten? Definitely it could happen, but their talent is immense. Their coach is, uh, Yogi Lowe is fantastic. He's one of those coaches that is able to adapt as the tournament goes on. And I think, you know, they have... Uh, perhaps the best goalkeeper in the world, Emmanuel Neuer, who can bail them out so many times. Jerome Boateng is coming into his own uh, as a defender in terms of you know being the solid, solid presence on the back line. Uh, so I, I like them. I mean, I, I've said from the beginning that I thought France or Germany was going to win. I did an interview the other day where I was saying, well, I'm feeling pretty good about France, but then they didn't look so great uh, for half the game against Ireland. So who knows? I mean... Uh, I think, to me, those two are the favorites uh, as we go on in this uh, knockout round. I was just wondering, I don't know if you've done this calculation. They did it with some of the Wimbledon guys. And uh, as we speak, which is Monday morning, this will probably change by tomorrow. But the national teams, like Wales, gets a bonus for advancing per round, right? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I believe that's true. Most teams have that kind of... Uh, you know, a structure built in. Certainly the Americans do, and I, I would imagine that the Welsh do, too. So it would be, it would be interesting to see if uh, Wales uh, had won its game two days ago and the bonus was paid then, how much more money they would have gotten since presumably they'd be paid in pounds, how much more money that would be worth than it is tomorrow. True, true. Although, I'm, you know, this is sort of beyond my purview, but my understanding generally is that it's not like they're I think they're paid, you know, usually months after the tournament is over. So I think whether they won, you know, uh, yesterday, the day before, next week, I think ultimately in the end, they're probably going to get paid, you know, at the end of the summer once the competition is finished and if they have any kind of like promotional games after the tournament is over or anything like that uh, or appearances, usually they get all they get paid out. Uh, I think, you know, several months afterwards. On that Wales and Northern Ireland game, are you more of a fan of uh, ending on an own on an own goal or being a game being decided on an own goal in play or on penalties? Which do you think is more uh, fair and aesthetically pleasing? Well, uh, certainly not aesthetically pleasing, but as uh, as somebody that has seen uh, and sadly experienced a couple of own goals in my time, uh, to me, there's no worse feeling in the world, and so I would never wish uh, that feeling on somebody. So I guess I would go with penalties, if only because I think that you know players that are in that situation where an own goal puts them out of the tournament, ultimately, that's something they're going to carry with them for a long, long, long time. And I, you know that's something I wouldn't wish on anybody. Yeah, Northern Ireland in this tournament, the English women's team at the World Cup, 
exactly. last yeah, summer. That was, yeah, that was brutal. Yes, of course. Exactly. Devastating, devastating. You know what also is devastating? Portugal and Belgium's jersey color, that sort of sanitarium <laughs> green. Does that look as bad in, in person as it does on television? It, it it does. I would say for me, Portugal's is marginally better. Uh, you know, you could argue that's kind of like a seafoam green kind of thing. Whereas to me, the Belgian jersey looks sort of like a hospital scrubs, um, and that's not a good look, in my opinion, for uh, you know international soccer tournaments. Which is why we should be rooting for one of the other teams to make it to the final. Uh, well, I, you know, it sounds uh, it sounds perhaps uh, like uh, you know, I'm, I'm, since I live in France, but I've always been partial to uh, the French jerseys. I think they're terrific. They're clean. They're you know, good colors, strong colors. I don't love the red. I don't love the red socks necessarily. To me, that's a bit of a faux pas. But uh, I, you know, I prefer the all the way blue. But at the same time, I think that you can't you can't argue with the jerseys. And, and as you said, the French uh, fashion plate certainly is uh, solid enough. Sam Borden covers international sports for the New York Times, and he's very well-dressed. Sam, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, you guys. I really enjoyed it. On the eve of the 2012 NBA draft, Grantland published a story titled, Is the NBA Done Drafting International Players? Just four foreign-born players were taken in the first round that year. Last week, however, the league's 30 teams selected a record number of foreign players, 14 in the first round alone, 15 if you include Arvidas Sabonis' son, and depending on how you count them, as many as 28 overall. With the fourth pick in the 2016 NBA, draft. The Phoenix Sun selected one of those internationals, 18-year-old 7'1 Dragan Bender of Croatia. Bender's agent is Doug Neustadt, and he joins us now. Thank you for coming on the show, Doug. Thank you for having me. The NBA has been aggressively scouting and drafting international players since the 1980s. You've been representing foreign players for a while. You have Boris Diaw since he was a teenager, Sarunas Jasakevicius, and now Bender, among others. Why do you think we saw this spike in foreign-born players this year? Um, it does come in waves uh, where the NBA will mine Europe for talent, um, so you'll see guys drafted between the ages of 18 and 21 pretty heavily, really 18 and 20. And then you won't see, you'll, you'll see some trickle of European talent the next couple years, but then it's got to be rebuilt from the 15, 16, 17-year-olds until they mature into draft eligible, the draft-eligible range. So I, I bet the next couple years, you won't see the influx of European talent that you did this year. Um, you'll, it, will, it will take two, three years to stock up again. That's number one. Number two is you had a lot of teams with multiple picks. You had Phoenix with multiple picks, although they didn't go foreign. You had Boston with multiple picks, Philadelphia with multiple picks. So some of those, you can't have five guys, you know, rookies on your roster. So a couple of the teams with multiple picks might sign someone from Europe who have buyout issues or are super young or might not want to come over to the NBA right, uh, right away, or they might want to avoid the rookie scale and stay in Europe for three years and use one of their picks on one of those guys as opposed to an NCAA rookie who would obviously want to come and play right away for the team, and they just can't have that. They can't have 
you know, it's tough to deal with two rookies, let alone five. I also sense the international market is sort of looking at the ebb and flow of where college talent is coming from. And this wasn't a great year, especially after the first two for college talent. So this is a year, I mean, from what I've been reading, where the internationals say we'll get a better selection if we want to come. And also the teams say, look, why waste a pick on... Uh, a guy from uh, Boise State who might not pan out will go international this year. There's no one great anyway. I'm not sure I buy into the, is the college uh, talent lacking in this year's draft? It's so hard to predict. I know next year is supposed to be loaded, but it's loaded from the standpoint of a really good freshman class. And after that, the talent's probably very similar to this. So, I think it had more to do with you have talented kids between 18 and 20, teams with multiple picks, teams saying we are very interested in in grabbing a European player because of that reason. That might have caused a few guys to, to trickle over into the NBA draft when they otherwise would have pulled their names out. Um, so I, I don't think it was because of lack of NCAA talent, maybe slightly, but but I don't think that was the main reason. Um, we don't know. You know, it's funny. I remember the Wiggins draft was supposed to be the, the biggest thing ever. And while it was a good draft, and it was a very, and certainly it was hyped, it was certainly not the draft that everyone thought it was going to be. And so you can only judge the talent and the quality of the draft three, four years after. And so this group might be a lot better than people think. Mm-hmm. But I, I think with the, when I'm, let's say I represent a European player and I'm evaluating whether to enter his name in the N- NBA draft and keep him there, the quality of the draft is a factor, but a small one compared to the other factors. You alluded to the NBA team strategy of what's called draft and stash. You draft one of the European guys, leave him over in Europe for a couple of years, let someone else foot the bill while he develops or grows. Um, Scout.com looked at the 2012 to 2015 drafts, 49 internationals were selected, 17 signed right away, 32 were stashed on their foreign club rosters. Only seven of them have made it to the league. Um, is, is, is there a reanalysis of, of, of how draft and stash can benefit you? Or is it pretty much rigidly accepted that, Hey, this is a risk we take. We take a guy, we see how he develops and maybe we get something down the road. You know, I think sometimes if you're an agent and you represent a player and you're receiving a lot of pressure from that player, the player doesn't understand it's not just about the draft. You can hear your name right. called, but that doesn't mean you're going to be in the NBA. So I think some agents feel this pressure, let's get your name called, let's get you, oh, pick 38 or pick 27, or you know, and they don't realize that the stash thing might not be the best route to take. Um, First of all, with the stash, you are on their books. uh, They have your rights. And they could trade them. That means they have full control. And they could just trade you wherever they wanted. As you could see, um, uh, Bogdanovich was traded on, I don't know if it was draft day or the day before, um, to, no, it was draft day from Phoenix to Sacramento. I mean, he had no control over that. But because they're his property, boom, he's automatically on. So all the, these two years, they've been, Phoenix has been scouting him and watching him and talking about how badly they want him. And then come draft night, bam, he's traded. So it, it's, 
scary. You might think you're going to the San Antonio Spurs, and two, three years later, you're suddenly on the worst team in the NBA. And so people have to be very careful. Agents have to be very careful about the stash thing. Um, I'm not a huge fan of it, although it's case by case, and in certain circumstances with the right club, it could be worth it. But circumstances change. General managers change. Coaches change. Um, you need to throw in a little kicker for the for a trade, a little something to sweeten the pot. Suddenly your player is being moved, and you didn't ask for that. You didn't negotiate that. That's not why you put him in the draft in the first place. So it's you, you lack control when you have a stash guy. The NBA team is in control, and they'll do with that player what they want to. So I know as fans, we see a player taken from a country or we see a player on a draft board. Oh, he's from Greece, let's say. And the only thing we do is say, oh, you know, that's plausible. Giannis on the box. He's good. Right. And before him is like, what the hell is a player from Greece doing? That's us as the fans. I also see analysts. uh, There are a couple good international analysts, but mostly they don't know. So they compare him to the last player from the country. How important is it for someone from a particular country to have success in the NBA uh, among the actual front offices? Are they still overly impressed by the fact that a countryman, possibly someone that he hadn't even played with or played at the same club teams with as the guy you're representing, but that guy's countryman did well in the NBA? It's like a school. Let's say a guy did really well from Kansas. Does that mean the next guy from Kansas is going to do really well? I mean, same competition. Maybe same level of recruiting from, you know, let's say he's a McDonald's All-American, same level of, of high school uh, accolades. But you have to do your own, you know, research. I, I think the big difference between 12, 13, 14 years ago and now, I think more general managers are going over. Um, I, before, you know, every, I shouldn't say every, most clubs had a European scout. And, all clubs do now, if not multiple scouts around the world, um, scouting different countries, territories, continents, whatever. Uh, but I don't think anymore general managers will just base something on a workout. General managers are going over to watch these guys practice and play like they scout a Kentucky, a Duke, a Kansas, a UCLA. So um, I think people have been burned before because they've made certain assumptions or they've relied on scouts' opinions. Well, if they're going to the SEC tournament, they should go to the Copa del Rey in Spain to view these three prospects. And that's what general managers are, are doing now, and, and they're seeing these guys firsthand. I can tell you with Dragon, um, two through seven, each general manager went to Israel this year to watch him at least once. You know, after, and this ties into, to, I think, the, the cyclical nature of this that you were referring to earlier. After the first big wave of foreign players and into the early 2000s, the mentality here was sort of us versus them among players and fans. There was a lot of resentment. You think of Tony Kukos. The perception grew that Americans, the American player was lazy and arrogant and didn't practice fundamentals, and the foreigner was hardworking and deferential and coachable. Is the us versus them fading? And is part of the reason for that is that general managers are better educated, are studying more, are scouting with their eyes more than they were 15 or 20 years ago? I think from the public standpoint, are you talking about from the NBA level 
the management I think both. level? I think from management level, level, but also from a fan level. Well, from the fan level, I can tell you the internet has, these guys are known products. These guys are known prospects. I mean, I, the first day we were there, there was an NCA player who was pretty famous walking out of the hotel, and there was a mob scene around that player. Kids wanted his autograph, and Drago and I were in the lobby, and we, had, we were waiting for someone, and the car pulled up to take him somewhere, and we did the same thing. And it was the same mob of kids yelling Dragon's name, and he's signing autographs. Finally, I had to pull him away and say, let's get in the car. We're going to be late. So I think the Internet, YouTube, um, the draft websites, they expose these guys to the American basketball fans at a pretty early age, not to mention he came over here, basketball without borders, um, mm-hmm. In 2015, during the NBA uh, All Star Game, he was over here for the uh, the, the Jordan Brand game in Brooklyn. Um, so before he even came over to the draft, oh, he's here uh, against the uh, Maccabi played Milan in Chicago and New York. So they're exposed to basketball fans. I don't think your average fan would know who he is, but your super NBA fans know who he is, just like they know who Jamal Murray or Buddy Yield is. I think people um, just thought he was Kristaps Porzingis, right? Right, or <laughs> Porzingis. Porzingis helped him a lot um, from a notoriety standpoint this year. So I, I think from a public standpoint, the Internet has really helped. From I could tell you from a, an NBA standpoint, if you have a good buyout and they think you're a good player, what they want to see is how badly do you want to play in the NBA? Because you've got to work really hard to go from 18, 19, 20-year-old prospect to 22, 23, 24-year-old player. And so, you know, they know that the guys at Michigan State or Ohio State or Florida or Kansas, those guys want to be in the NBA. They grew up loving the NBA. And, of course, they ask the same questions. They want to find out. But there's probably a, a, a presumption that those guys are dying to be in the NBA. Well, they want to make sure that the foreign guys have the same passion, are willing to make the same sacrifice work-wise to, get, to turn themselves into prospect from prospect to player. And I think that's the question. I don't think maybe some GMs shy away from Europe, but I think for the most part, if they feel that this guy can move the needle on their team or he's the best player, they're going to – I mean, it, it's proven. Look at the draft right now. I mean, I can't – I don't know. I didn't look at that. I haven't had time to look at the numbers, but I bet – 40% of the draft was from outside the United States, whether it's from a guy who played in Europe or was in the NCAA and was born somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's a bias for or against. I think they have to do their due diligence on whether a guy really wants it. What's the major calculation in when you're advising one of these uh, internationals whether to go to an American college? Obviously, Wiggins, Simmons speak English from Canada. It's Canada, yeah. Canada and Australia. But then you have other players who maybe have to learn English and they go to, but they still get admitted to college. When would you advise your guys to go to college and when not? I mean, if you don't have a good command of the English language, I would say it's not a good, good time to go to college. That's going to be tough. Um, I also, I think you look at it also from a basketball perspective. Let's say you're 16 years old. I mean, you're not going to decide to go to college when you're 18. All of a sudden, okay, 18, I'm, I'm going to go to college. No, you've got to, just like an American, you've got to prepare ahead of time. Right. 
And so let's say you're 16 and you're looking at, okay, how am I going to fill my next two, three, four, five years of development from a basketball standpoint? Sometimes it's better to turn pro if you're that good and get developed in Europe. I mean, there's no restrictions on practice time. Um, once you turn 18, you, you know, you do take classes and you get your high school degree over there, but you have time to fully focus and develop your basketball skills as opposed to a college kid who has limited time, limited practice, you're in school, and that's just as important. So if you're good enough and you're, you find a, a good program to develop you, then why not turn pro in Europe? Now, the problem over there is that there aren't so many programs that focus on young development. Most want to win. And you look at, uh, like, Dragan and Maccabi, you say he's the fourth pick in the draft, yet he played 12 minutes a game in the Israeli league. I mean, what's going on? They're full of 28, 29, 30-year-old men who want to win the championship. And so it's tough. He was sacrificed a bit in order to have that team win. Now, my point is, go play him, and you probably would have won more. But they didn't think that. They didn't think as an 18-year-old he was ready um, to play 20 to 20, 30 minutes a game. It's competitive to get these guys. How did you get Dragon Bender to sign with you? Well, my partner in Europe, uh, Maurizio Balducci of Pro Talent, represented him um, when he turned pro. And so I've known Dragon for, I've been watching him since he was 15, and I've known him for a couple of years. And so it kind of happened naturally. And then this year, um, you know, he signed with me, and the rest is history. What about the age? I think he's the youngest. He is the youngest player in yes. the NBA. Uh, that is one of the things that makes him tantalizing. Just look how tall he is and look at his potential. And yet, young is young. He's, fortunately for us, he's a very mature 18. Maybe not his body. I mean, he needs to be developed. But maturity-wise, mentally, emotionally, the guy's not 18 years old. At least he doesn't seem like it. He left home at a very early age with his brother to go to a basketball academy to pursue his dream. He then, uh, he was 16 years old when he went to Israel. He played in a second division team on the 14-15 season and played as a 17-18-year-old in the with Maccabi Tel Aviv this year. That's an abnormal childhood. That's something he grew up quickly. And he's an incredibly smart guy. Um, and I think he'll be able to handle this transition better than your normal 18-year-old from Croatia. This is not a draft and stash in, by any means. He'll oh, be no, on no, 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 no. He's, yeah. no, no. In fact, he, he he's the fourth pick in the draft. apartments on Saturday. Yeah. In I hope you had found one with high ceilings. <laughs> right, exactly. There's no second floor there. I mean, it, it, when we were there, it was 115 degrees. How but, much? How I'm thinking of uh, baseball agents and their players and their arms. But how much? How involved do you get in trying to communicate to the his his employer how much he should be used and how much you know you have to take it easy on the 18 year old minutes? No, that's not. That's not me. Um, I think it's more how is he developed and getting involved with the overall plan to develop this player um, over the next three, four years. He's 18. 
he has years to grow, but it's got to be done right. And a thing that we're going to get involved with is to make sure that when they, when he does, when he hits the weight room, they do it the right way. And, and we're going to make sure that, and, and we trust Phoenix. I mean, Phoenix has done that the right way in the past. Um, but this is a player that you don't want to put a lot of weight on because you don't want to lose his mobility and his agility and, and how smooth and swift he is. It's, he's incredible to move the way he does at 7-1, and you don't want to lose that. So we'll get involved from that standpoint and just kind of check on his progress, see what the game plan is. They'll be in touch with us. But it's not our jobs to say, hey, guys, this rookie year, um, it's 15 to 20 minutes. No, that's, that's between the coach and the GM and Dragon. And some of it's going to be how quickly he develops. I mean, we can't predict that. Maybe he develops quicker than we think. So I think we have to, at some point, let that go and see what happens with him and the coach and his teammates and see where it goes. And, um, and, and if there's an issue, if, if it's too much or too little, or then we get involved, we talk about it. But it, it's not like a set goal at the beginning. That's not the right way to go about it. Mm. I just want you to comment on one of his weaknesses as listed on an NBA draft uh, board. Uh, relies on length rather than boxing out to grab rebounds. Um, he is pretty tall with a nine-foot, three-inch standing reach. Is that the worst thing in the world? Is that a weakness? Yeah, I know. That was listed as a weakness. <laughs> I, I, I mean, he's, I, I, he's nine inches away from the rim. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can't imagine that's a weakness. I, I, I don't, I have no idea. Who said that? That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> well, what was the weakness? The fact that he was too tall? Yeah, you know, you want to you want to <laughs> crouch and like stick your butt out. I guess. I, I guess it's written by one of these people who's under seven feet tall who doesn't understand. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, it seems to work for Przingis. Doug Newstad is an NBA player agent. He represents the fourth pick in last week's draft, Dragan Bender from Croatia, who was picked by the Phoenix Suns. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Now you will hear Josh's voice and mine because Josh and I recorded our interview with Claressa Shields earlier. Here's Josh. In 2012 in London, then 17-year-old Claressa Shields won a gold medal in boxing. That was the first year that women were allowed to compete in the sport in the Olympic Games. Since then, the Flint, Michigan native has consolidated her position as one of the best boxers in the world by winning the last two world championships in the middleweight division, the most recent of those in Astana, Kazakhstan last month, where she was the only American to bring home gold. She's also the subject of a great documentary called T-Rex about the run-up to her star turn in the 2012 Olympics and what happened afterwards. In this clip from the documentary, some representatives from USA Boxing are speaking with Claressa about how to make herself more marketable. I want every time you're on TV, if a potential sponsor sees you, for them to be drawn to you and say, oh, I want to work with that girl. But I would love for you to stop saying that you like being people up and making me cry. You would love me to stop saying that? Yes. Stop saying that. Why? Sometimes you seem like you're a bullshit. When it comes to somebody wanting to get behind me and saying, I want this person to represent my brand. I box. I understand right, that. Right, right. I understand what you're saying. You understand what I'm saying? Just, it's like an image thing. It, it, you have to uh, kind of tone it down a little bit. 
I hear you say so many other things about being a role model in your community, wanting to be this and that, and wanting to bring something positive to Flint, and all of that. Yeah, that all builds on it. Okay, I can reword that. Okay. Just something to think about. <laughs> Joining us now are Sue J. Johnson, a producer of the documentary T-Rex, which is in select theaters, and you can rent it or buy it on Vimeo. And it'll also be on PBS's Independent Lens in August. And also Clarissa Shields, the subject of the documentary. Hey, guys. Hi. So, Clarissa, this is a safe space, and you can tell people that, you know, you can tell us that you like to beat up people and make them cry. (laughs) Don't be worried about that. But The great thing about this documentary, what I found so fascinating, is that in a lot of sports movies, fictional sports movies, you win the gold medal and then it's over and everyone's happy. This doesn't end. The winning the gold medal kind of happens in the in the middle of the film, and you see what happens afterwards. And so, what was that experience like for you, winning in London and then just kind of going back to your regular life? Well, the strange thing about all of it was going back to school. I was in the twelfth grade. I had Olympic gold medal. Uh, everybody just thought I was rich after the Olympics. And just the whole experience, uh, it was a little, you know, at the beginning, about the first year and a half, it was a little it was a little sad for me. I felt like I got left out of a lot of things. Um, I didn't get any endorsements, you know, any sponsorships. And I kind of was, you know, I was still living in Flint, but I was still boxing. So, you know, I had got everything that I wanted, and that was the Olympic gold medal, but uh, I thought, you know, with an Olympic gold medal comes the endorsements and all that stuff. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, it's hard enough for Olympic athletes to support themselves between Olympic Games or between world championships. You, in a way, as we see in T-Rex, you were doubly burdened. You grew up in some very difficult economic and personal circumstances and and became this Olympic idol and the sort of most famous person in this in this hard scrabble city, Flint, Michigan, what was that like for you? And and have you how have you tried to sort of explain that to people since the since the games since London? You know, it's really not uh, it's really not much to explain. You know, I just you know I I had a tough upbringing, and you know after the games, you know even though I didn't get everything that I felt that I should have, it's kind of like I just left it in the past and moved forward and focused on you know, my career after that, you know, um, still boxing and Rio is in two months. So I just kind of just put that behind me and start looking forward. And I've been undefeated for four years going into the games. Yeah, that's awesome. And you've only lost once in your entire career. And yeah. for a, <laughs> we we can see that in the, in the film, but you overcome, you triumph, you triumph over adversity. But, um, in any Olympic sport, but I think especially in ones like boxing, where people most people don't follow it in the four years in between, people don't see mm-hmm. the hard work that you put in, and they don't even see these world championships that you win, and and don't kind of understand all of the accomplishments. So, does that feel weird to you or unfair to you that so much gets put on this one event that happens only every four years? Well, you know, I always feel like I'm a pretty big deal. Um, I, I decided a long time ago that just because the media or, you know, let's say Oprah and whoever else is big doesn't, you know, take attention to what I'm doing, that it's not a big deal. It's a big deal to me. I feel like I'm a mega superstar. 
Uh, I wish that it was on TV more, but since it's not, you know, I use my social media. And now that I have, you know, 14,000 followers and, you know, 11,000 followers on Facebook and stuff like that, I just kind of try to promote myself and, you know, show boxing on there. And uh, and I get followers and I get people that's uh, that's interested in it. But um, I always feel like what I'm doing is important. It's it's not it's not weird to me. It's just that I think that boxing itself has just uh, went downhill because, you know, after 2012 Olympics, you walked out of the Olympics with one Olympic gold medalist. And that was myself and none of the men medals. So that kind of brought some of the attention down in amateur, bo- amateur boxing for the U.S. But. Uh, leading up to this games, you actually have some champions to look forward to fighting to fighting in the game. So that should be something that uh, you know, that is great for USA Boxing. And hopefully, they'll maybe put us back on TV or something. <laughs> I've got a question for you, Clarissa and Sue. You connected when Clarissa was what fifteen years old, uh, sixteen, sixteen, and. Sue approached you about doing a radio documentary, <laughs> gave you a tape recorder and asked you to talk into it for a series that <laughs> appeared on uh, WNYC called Radio Diaries. And watching this movie, this is a different person from who you are now. This is a much younger girl. And now you are a 21-year-old woman. What's it like to watch T-Rex now? And what do you think of the, the person that's in that film? I'm the, I'm the same person. I just got older. And uh, I started caring about things that I didn't care about. But that 17-year-old was, uh, man, I, I was bold. I was still am, but it was like I was way more outspoken. And I didn't really care about how anybody felt about my opinions or how they felt about, you know, me being honest. I was, like, brutally honest with about everything, really. Uh, now that I'm 21, I'm just like, huh, I talk a little different. I talk a lot slower. Um, <laughs> I talk a lot slower, and you know, I and, and I keep a lot of you know my opinions to myself if I can bear it. Sometimes it's just like I gotta say this. I have to get this <laughs> off my chest. But but I know the whole a lot more things now, and uh, and I've learned that you know uh, some things deserve response and a lot of things don't. So I just kind of be like, okay, okay, okay. So, yes. Sue, when, when you approached Clarissa, how did you find her, and how is she different now than she was when you were making the, the radio documentary and, and the film? Oh, God, she was so quiet when I first met her. Uh, <laughs> I had been photographing the women who were going to try to make history by being the first women to box in the Olympics, and it was the very last tournament in this high school gymnasium in Toledo, Ohio. And nobody had seen Clarissa fight because she'd been in the junior division and she and her coach Jason would drive across the country looking for a fight and the coaches would see her warm up and they would pull their fighter. So so she was like pretty much an unknown coming in and uh, she enters the ring and I think you stop that fight in like 30 seconds. And I just hadn't seen anybody fight with that kind of just um, completely un- uh, uninhibited power before. And so I approached her and Jason and, and asked if I could photograph them and document them. And we sat down and we did like a, I don't know, like a two hour, four hour interview. And you talked a lot. And Jason afterwards said to me, her coach, um, you know, thank you. I, I, you know, we spent all this time together, but I didn't know much of that. 
because we don't really talk about that kind of stuff. <laughs> we don't. We didn't really talk just about boxing. Yeah, and I don't. And you also, you also said to me, nobody's asked asked me these questions before, and I think that the process of being interviewed really made you think about things that you had never been um, asked to think about before. Yeah. So. You you were quiet. The one of the first things you said to me was that you before boxing you wanted to have ten kids by the time you were twenty six. Yep. And that and that to me was like, oh my god, there's so much at stake here. This is this is about so much. Did the documentary cause any kind of trouble within your family, Clarissa? I mean, there's some moments in there where your sister is saying, you know, things about your stepfather, and I just I, I wonder how all of that kind of played and how it maybe changed the dynamic within your family? No, no. Uh, the film was brutally honest and uh, you said my stepdad. I think he's talking about your mom's boyfriend. Oh, that's not my stepdad, but my mom and uh, my mom and that guy is still together and my sister gets along with that guy now. Uh, my mom seen the documentary. She was fine with it because everything was the truth you know if i would have you know over exaggerated anything or, or something like that she would you know said something but everything was the truth and um i actually had a conversation with my mom before i even started talking you know talking openly about you know her being an alcoholic and uh, stuff like that and just about like my how i felt my uh, childhood went and um when i when i talked to her and I let her know, like, like, we, like, you know, I was going to ask these questions and, you know, if it was okay for me to tell them, you know. And she was like, yeah, t- tell them the truth. So that's what I did. And since the film came out, your life has changed a lot. You've left Flint. You've moved to Colorado Springs to be at the Olympic yeah. Training Center. And it is clear in T-Rex that your relationships at home with your coach, Jason Crutchfield, with whom you were living, um, with with him and his wife and with your own family were definitely challenging. Is that mm-hmm. what motivated you to 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 move to to find new coaching and and to to become part of the Olympic establishment rather than this sort of outsider who was uh, in Flint, Michigan? You know what? Um, the move had honestly nothing to do with with any of them. It was a sign. It was a sign from God. He had been telling me for a long time just to leave Flint. And it wasn't that I wasn't supposed to be there. It was just that um, there were more opportunities mm-hmm. outside of Flint. And also I had went through a time where I was uh, pretty depressed and it was about like a year and a, about a year and a half ago. And um, I was thinking about quitting boxing because um, I just felt like nothing in my life was going right. And then, you know, uh, boxing was just, it's, it's really not that hard for me, but it was like really hard at home. So I was just like, I really, you know, need to get away from, you know, what makes me not happy. And uh, at the time, you know, I was dealing with my family. I'm dealing with, you know, with the with the coaching thing. And it was more of like, you know what, boxing is what really makes me happy. Even though I love my family to death, you know, boxing keeps me sane. It keeps me relaxed. And I just want to be where I can sleep and train, you know, without having any problems. So that's what I decided to do. That's a mature and, uh, decision to make. That's not an easy decision for a 19 or 20-year-old to make. Nobody really knew I was serious. You know, I kind of just packed up a big old bag. And then um, I actually flew down to uh, to Colorado Springs at first. And then I had came back and I picked up my car. And then, you know, when I had all my stuff in my car and my family was asking where I was going, I said, I'm going back to Colorado Springs. And... um 
that's when everybody was like, wow, you really, she really just up and left. Like, I just, I didn't really ask anybody how they felt about it. I just kind of was like, this is what's best for me and this is what has to happen. You know, uh, if I want to do what I want to do for this Olympics, and my, and my goal was, in which I did a great job, was to remain undefeated, to win the world championships twice, to, you know, get my life in order with my managers and with my agents and make sure that I have the right build-up for the Olympics. So this time, you know, I will be respected and I will get what I, you know, um, earned and deserve, you know, just besides the gold medal, but, you know, also get the endorsements and be known, you know, worldwide. So once I started that quest, that's when all the endorsements and sponsorships and ESPN and HBO and everything started rolling in. Even with the film T-Rex, you know, I was going around uh, going to some of those uh, film festivals and doing a, a Q&A after meeting all types of kids in different areas. So, you know, I was kind of just ex- just expanding. Sue, um, how much of it was kind of explicit in making the film that you guys wanted to document what I perceive to be a really fundamental unfairness here, which is the kind of amateur requirement in boxing and the Olympics is a relic of the past. It doesn't exist in a lot of other sports in the Olympics. And a lot of people around Clarissa just seem to assume and hope like she's going to win the gold and then, you know, cha-ching. And there's not really an explicit pathway for that to happen. But the fact that you have to remain amateur to be in the Olympics and, you know, you win, you get famous or get known and then kind of nothing happens. Like how much of, of that was something that you really felt that you, that you needed to show? Well, you know, Clarissa's got this like double hurdle in that. Um, so she's an Olympian, but she's an Olympian women, a woman boxer. And there's so much resistance in this culture to that. So don't say you, know, you like to beat I, people up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny because there's been such um, crossover in MMA, but in boxing, it's still this complete patriarchy and, and culturally, uh, you know, I would say a lot of Clarissa's biggest supporters are, are older women who totally get what she's doing and what she's come through and what she's overcome. But, um, but it's like getting a lot of people on board to uh, try and support her and, and open up the, the, doors for her to do what she wants to do so in the film uh yeah like you know we we kind of i feel like we kind of saw this coming like there were these um lots of hopes and dreams on okay this gold medal this gold medal and the truth is like yeah like that should have that should have resulted in a lot more support than she got but at the same time it uh the lack of support and endorsements it really gave clarissa time to to grow, I think. I mean, I don't know, Clarissa, like what it would have been like for you if you had been showered with lots of <laughs> money at that time. I don't think I don't think you were ready for it. I tell people that all the time. Honestly, I tell them, you know, you know, God say good things come to those that wait. I didn't talk this I didn't talk this well when I was seventeen. I wasn't this open and, you know, at the time I really didn't even care about my appearance or being a role model. So I think now, you know, for me I think if I would have got it then, I would have to kind of have to be restarting 
you know, right now, like, like I think that I would still be 17 in the mind right now instead of, you know, being 21. So I, I did a lot of growing in the last four years. So oh, you, you I, care, I feel you on that. You cared about your appearance at the prom, though. We saw that in the film. <laughs> Who doesn't want to look good at the prom? <laughs> <laughs> well, part of that growth also is recognizing your circumstances and what they do to you, isn't it? I mean, your relationship with Jason Crutchfield, your coach, I'm someone who mentored you, brought you into the sport. But you see in the film that something's just not right about going forward that I could see. I felt for you that you needed sort of management and you needed outsiders to come in and help you navigate the bigger world. Yeah, for a long time, I was by myself with that. Yeah. Um, you know, after the games, of course, my manager was Jason. He was my coach. Uh, he was basically everything. And then, you know, I signed with this agent who was not. Good. I signed. I signed with one agent that wasn't good, but I but I've dealt with two, and it was just like you know what. Um, I just felt like he controlled too much of my life. It was like if we got into it at the gym, he wouldn't talk to me at the house, or he wouldn't you know answer the emails. And then if we got into it, you know, it just was like you know boxing was kind of like if we got into it at the house, he you know at the gym he wouldn't barely talk to me. It, it just got really a uh, really hard to deal with. And um, I think you know I always think about it from my point of view. But I think about it from his now, and it's like maybe he was frustrated also, you know, because I kind of just was like after the first year, I was like, I'm not um, I'm not about to live in where I should be and what magazines I should be in. I was like, I, I don't want to do that, and I don't want to live in that place. So I kind of just was like, you know, I'm Clarissa Shields, the Olympic gold medalist, and I'm figuring out my life from here forward. Like, like I'm not going to, you know, think about, all the endorsements and everything. And I think kind of even with him, uh, he had a dream also, you know, for the Olympic gold medal, but uh, it was more. So I think maybe he got frustrated with that. And then at that, you know, I was getting older and he just couldn't, you know, let uh, let it go that I wasn't a little baby anymore. You know, I'm 18, I'm 19 years old. I'm, you know, living by myself. I got drive a car now and stuff like that. You know, I don't think... Uh, I think it's hard for, for for any father to try to, you know, look past that. But stuff just happened. I think your relationship with him now just is like a sign of your maturity too. I mean you guys have you guys have come a long way and yeah. seeing each other for who you are. Yeah, in, in what ways, Sue? How how has that relationship changed? Well, I think one thing was even just the two of you seeing the film together. Like at the time that they saw the premiere, they hadn't spoken for a while. And um and I was sitting in the aisle next to them when they were sitting in this, they were sitting pretty close to each other. And then the fight scenes come on and Jason turns to Clarissa. He's like, did you see that? Did you see how she's moving her foot? You move her foot. And, and the two of them are just like engaged. They, they forgot that they weren't speaking because they were talking about <laughs> boxing. Um, but Clarissa, the first, one of the first things you said to me after you saw the film was like, wow, you know, like I really I see now how much Jason sacrificed. It's like when you're a kid, you don't know what your parents do during the day. And like you see in the movie, Jason's. You know, up he's a lineman in in Detroit. Like you know, goes drives an hour each way. And, he wasn't getting paid for this coaching. The coaching is free. And Clarissa, you recounted one time that you said he. You, I always look forward to him being in the gym. And one night he wasn't there, and you called him, and you said, "Hey, coach, are you coming in?" And he said, "You know, I'm just I'm really tired." And you said, "Oh, okay." And then you said, like an hour later, you looked up and there was Jason in the gym. Yeah. Like he just he couldn't not be there for you, and so so I think you know it's like part of growing up. You recognized your your parents as as human beings, so I, I think that that has happened for both of you. I think Jason also, when he saw the film, saw Clarissa as with some objectivity, with that distance, and like oh yeah, you know she's she she does know what she wants, and I have to let her try that 
for herself. So, so is your plan, Clarissa, to turn pro after the Olympics? You know, I'm trying to take it one uh, one tournament at a time. Good athlete answer. Good. Very mature. Yeah. Very mature answer. Um, what did you think of the movie Creed? Oh, man, they need to go and make another Creed and, you know, put me in it. But the movie Creed was a uh, – I got a I, – I, I actually was able to meet uh, Michael B. Jordan in person. And uh, I think as far as in, you know, everybody watches Rocky and they like, you know, Rocky is like a total, you know, it's, it's made up and you can tell it's somebody who never boxed before. But uh, with, uh, with uh, Creed, you can actually see that uh, Michael B. Jordan, he actually trained some. And uh, you can tell he had like some skills. He, I don't think he can do you know anything in the professional boxing now. But oh, I think he'd kick his ass. I think he has a lot of <laughs> he has a lot of skill, <laughs> and uh, he has some great teachers teaching him. As far as because you can see when he first started, where he was on a wall, you know, learning a jab, and then you see where he's like actually learning like the combinations and learning the slipping. And you're like, okay, this is decent. This is some decent <laughs> skill you got going on. So I was like, you know, I have to give you respect. You know, good job with that. You had a pretty decent form. And I told him, I said, this come from an Olympic gold medalist. So, <laughs> you know, feel proud of yourself. <laughs> uh, Chris, you talked to the undefeated, the new ESPN website about Muhammad Ali's death. Um, yeah. You weren't alive to see Ali box, obviously, um, or to recognize his, his, his contributions to society in an immediate way when it was happening. But it sounds mm-hmm. like it, he actually meant something to you. Yeah, of course. You know, it's not just that he meant something in boxing, but I love the fact that uh, how he made me feel as being, you know, not just a boxer, but being an African-American. You know, he, he spoke about things that, other boxers would not speak about and that boxers would not speak about till this day, you know, not like, like not even celebrities. He used his platform to help people, not just African-Americans, but all people. And everybody loved him. When I, when I heard that he passed, I felt like, I felt like a part of me was taken because it was like, now, you know, it's crazy. I was able to meet Floyd Mayweather. And, um, I, I just wish that when I met, you know, Muhammad Ali, that he was able to, you know, he was still, he was still ill. He wasn't really able to talk. Wait, wait, wait. You got to meet Ali? I met Muhammad Ali, yeah, Where? four years ago in Where? Philadelphia. What were the circumstances? Were you boxing there? Was it an event? Actually, me, Layla Ali, Lonnie Ali, um, we were able, and also Terrence Howard was there also. Um, we were able to give him the Liberty Medal in Philadelphia that year. And uh, I don't know what the Liberty Medal stood for, but I know it was something big. I can I really can't remember. But me and a girl named Susan announced Terrence Howard, and Terrence Howard announced Layla Ali. And then then we were all on stage, and she gave Muhammad Ali, her father, the Liberty Medal. All right, Clarissa, you're going to be going to Rio soon. And how how many fights do you? Um, have to win. Uh, what, what's what's the schedule looking like for you? Maybe four fights, three or four. And have you sized up the competition? Sized up all of them. I beat everybody at least once. And, um, you know, recently I fought against, you know, I don't know. I kind of, like, build these fights up in my head before they happen. And uh, two, uh, two years ago um, at the World Championships, in South Korea, I boxed against, um, you know, China in the finals. But I thought I should have been boxing against a girl from the Netherlands, and her name is Nushka. And uh, she's pretty tall, 
and she's a heavy hitter. And uh, for the last two years, I was just telling myself, I just can't wait to fight her. I just can't wait to run into her. I really want to fight her. And it's like uh, every time somebody, so she was ranked number three in the world. And uh, every time somebody is ranked that high and I haven't fought them, uh, there's always, you know, some talk, you know, there's always, oh, she may can do this with Clarissa. She may can do that. So I love to, um, you know, once again, prove the doubters wrong, prove that I'm the best, prove that I cannot be beat by anybody. And uh, so for the last two years, she's been like an opponent that I've been hitting on in the gym, on the bag, you know, uh, moving around in the ring with moving my head, with you know, working on just boxing against against her because I thought she was top competition. And um, I was able to fight against her in the finals at the Worlds that just passed. And, I mean, I dominated her, you know, 3-0 decision. Uh, that's unanimous for those that don't know. And... Um, it was a it was it was a pretty good fight. I mean, it wasn't like she was competitive, but I'm just great. I'm just great at what <laughs> I do. So I so I can say, you know, she she was competitive, but I already had a game plan for her. And it was like, you know, as much as she was thinking about, you know, maybe running into me, I was thinking about running into her. So uh it was a great match and um the women have definitely uh, advanced and you know in their skill over the last four years. So I look forward to the Olympics and I look forward to the competition, and uh, hopefully I get a knockout there. I knock somebody out. That's my goal. And I think you should get knock somebody out and also get that new nickname, She Goat. Wow, where did you hear about <laughs> that at? <laughs> I got That's sources. They should I got, definitely I got call sources. me. I got sources. For she Goat. You, I wonder who do you talk to because I haven't really said that much. <laughs> but definitely, they should definitely call me She Goat from now on. Um, and um, I have I have thought about female goat, but I like She Goat better. <laughs> I think She Goat definitely yeah. rolls off the tongue better. <laughs> I have bad news for you, Clarissa. I don't doubt you, so you're not going to be fueled by by any doubts on this podcast. We uh, we are believers in Clarissa Shields, and we're gonna we're looking forward to. Uh, watching you in Rio. And if you want to see the documentary, it's really great. Um, you can see it in select theaters now. You can rent it or buy it on Vimeo, and it'll be on PBS's independent lens in August. Sue J. Johnson and Clarissa Shields, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank, thank you, you for having us. And let me add that T-Rex is screening this week through Thursday at the Made in New York Media Center by IFP in Brooklyn. We'll post a link with details on the Hang Up and Listen show page. And now it's time for After Balls. Mike, I have a soft spot for Albania and the double-headed eagle, which as a vexillologist you know adorns the Albanian flag. Mm -hmm. And the Austrian flag. Mm -hmm. And some versions of the Polish flag. There, wow, I didn't know that. Um, so I was sad to see the Greek neighbor exit the Euros. Albania did win a game. They beat Romania 1-0. So Mike, let's go back 70 years. Two years after the repressive dictator Enver Hoxha took control of Albania. On August 22nd, 1946, Kamil Taliti scored the first goal for the Albanian national team. A couple of months later, he scored the winning goal as Albania beat Romania to win the Balkan Cup. And he had a great nickname, Tarzani. Mm. Yeah, Tarzani. Yeah. Mike, what's your Kamil Taliti? 
So first of all, I got to correct what I just said. Austrian flag, only a single-headed eagle. But some oh. versions of the Polish flag go two ways. So I, my afterball is just uh, putting it to you and our listeners. What should I do with Jose Reyes? He's coming back to the Mets. Loved him as a player. He is a domestic abuser, not convicted or even prosecuted by the courts because after getting physical with his wife on vacation in Hawaii, she refused to cooperate with prosecutors. To the MLB's credit, they suspended him for 50 games, 51, even though the justice system wouldn't do anything. So is that enough justice? So here are my considerations. One, I don't want to support domestic abuse. I don't want to send the signal that I don't. Two, I've heard a lot of advocates for the domestically abused say that it would be a very bad situation. So going back to one, what if we all got together and said, no, there shall be no place for you here? Uh, That's unrealistic, but that would be a good thing. Actually, this is number two. I've heard many advocates say, were that to be the position, it would would be very bad in terms of the overall scope of domestic abuse. Because if a woman's family, uh, her husband's ability to earn a living were forever compromised by her reporting the domestic abuse, she wouldn't do it. And considerations like this come along. Three, what if he's just a tiny little role player? I mean, how, how do I even separate whatever disdain I have for Jose Reyes from the overall Mets product for, yes, it's only rooting for a team, but I do it a lot. I get great pleasure out of it. I bond with my children over it. If you add up the amount of hours, I'm not a Mets obsessive. I don't go to Fear and Faith and Flushing the Blog too much. I don't listen to any Mets-specific podcast, but I'm putting the game on and watching it at least in the background or listening to it for, if I'm home, you know, the hours that it's on for most nights. It's like a lot of time, more so than any other sport. I spend a lot of time with the Mets. And uh, to their credit, Keith Hernandez and Gary Cohen, the, the uh, broadcasters, talked about it in earnest yesterday. Keith didn't really add much clarity, but Gary talked about all these points that I'm talking about. And then I come to number five, which is I remember when all this uh, stuff came out about Chick-fil-A, and I said to myself, I really love those delicious sandwiches, but I probably won't be uh, patronizing Chick-fil-A just based on the fact that there are delicious sandwiches other places. I don't want to be so punitive that I can't give people second chances. But Chick-fil-A, the owners of Chick-fil-A still believe in those anti-gay policies. At least Jose Reyes has said, you know, I'm a human being. People make mistakes. I'm going to stand up for the terrible mistake that I made and say I'm sorry it happened like that to my wife, to my family, to all the fans who follow me, people that don't like me anymore. I respect that because I put myself in this situation and people need a second chance. Sure. The motivation of all the Mets brass is to give him the second chance because he could help them at a cheap price. My motivation as a Mets fan would be to buy a second chance argument, but I'm wondering how much I should do it, how much uh, this totally unimpactful stance will have on the team. You know, I'm just kind of thinking about the best way to function as a moral and ethical person while at the same time rooting for a team that signed Jose Reyes. Your thoughts are appreciated. It is hard. I think the only way to do it is to, I'm a Mets fan. Jose Reyes can help us win. He's an asshole. Yes, but let's go beyond. That's maybe even too easy. What about the second chance? You know, I was that statement that he made, which was 
Good mm-hmm. that it didn't seem um, just written by a PR person. But you expect him to make a statement, so you can mm-hmm. dismiss it as, oh, great, of course he's going to make a statement. But had he not made the statement, that would have been bad. I actually do believe in giving people second chances. I just Right. Don't what know do we know about it. Jose Reyes's personality? I was being glib. Um, yeah. The, the, the new um, episode of Invisibilia touches on this. The NPR program touches on the idea of personality and how it changes over time and whether it's possible to change. Is Jose Reyes just a bad guy or can Jose Reyes actually become a different person? Right. But the thing is, a couple things. Walter Michelle, as quoted in that, I think early in his career, Jose Reyes would have taken the marshmallow. But I think <laughs> the weird thing about the Jose Reyes personality, as much as we know, is he seemed sunny and wonderful on the Mets. So maybe yeah. this is the change for the worse. Uh, we don't know. Just based on how people are on the field, we don't, we don't know. And isn't that really the, the point that you should be giving to your children about rooting for athletes anyway? We don't know. We don't know. They Just, play baseball, but we yeah. don't know anything else about them. And he's taking, he might be taking at-bats from Wilmer Flores, who cried when he left the Mets. Yeah. Stefan, what's your Camille Taliti? Well, there are many reasons to root for Wales to keep advancing in Euro 2016. Small country, very rarely gets this far in major competitions. It's not England. Welsh has some great vowelless words that are good in Scrabble, like cum, C-W-M, and cruth, C-R-W-T-H. Gareth Bale's top knot, I like. You might say that Wales is plucky, and plucky is an especially appropriate word to describe this Welsh team because of midfielder Joe Allen. While Cristiano Ronaldo flexes on the covers of Vogue and GQ and Esquire, Joe Allen was on the cover of the spring issue of Chicken and Egg magazine. Yes, Chicken and Egg magazine, tagline, welfare and food together. It's published by the British Hen Welfare Trust, which finds homes for hens after they're done laying eggs at commercial egg farms. The magazine had a three-page spread with a Q&A with Joe Allen and photos of his family. I am joined now by Chicken and Egg magazine for a reading of part of its interview with Joe Allen. Joe, we were pleasantly surprised to find a footballer who's also a hen lover. What inspired you to keep hens? Do you have ends as a child growing up in Wales? Well, my wife, Lacey, age 30, was behind the decision. We both have an interest in animal welfare, but she came up with the idea to save ends and M's too, I think. And I agreed to it. It was something that would be great to do. We didn't have any ends growing up, but we wanted to help chickens after they finished their commercial lives. How many ends do you have? Do they have names? Well, we began with four ends, but our flock has steadily grown to 14 ends and two cockerels. It's fair to say we have a pretty random variety of names. The cockerels are named Bruce and Rodney, and the hens are Meg, Leg, Silky Steve, Kate, Silky Steve Jr., Giblets, or Giblets. <laughs> I'll go with Giblets. Snowy Nugget, Kiev, Dora, Holly, Shimmer, Shine, and Chickaletta. All right, now I'm going to go from another strata of English society to ask this question. We saw on Twitter that your wife gave you a cockerel for your 24th birthday. Was it a surprise of the right kind? I didn't see it coming at all, so I was, it was a massive surprise. Massive! But I was delighted. It spread like wildfire on social media, so Bruce was instantly famous. I think that's probably enough. Okay. (laughs) Great interview, right? Progressive athlete, 
supports his chosen cause, unafraid to be the cover boy for Chicken and Egg magazine. And of course, that's just how the interview was received by the English media. Here are a few headlines. The Mirror, Liverpool midfielder Joe Allen reveals love for his pet chickens in bizarre interview. The Sun, Joe Allen opens up about love of foul play in bizarre chicken and egg magazine interview. Uh-huh. Daily Mail, Liverpool midfielder Joe Allen swaps the cop for the coop as Welshman tells of his love for his 16 pet chickens. The cop is the nickname for the stands at Anfield where Liverpool plays. So shortly after Chicken and Egg hit the newsstands, Allen was, of course, asked about it by the English soccer media. Let's just say he didn't sound like he was happy to get the question, let alone that he was proud to say that he was, I don't know, a card-carrying member of PETA. You saw an interview with yourself with uh, Chicken and Egg magazine this week. Something a bit different. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I'm surprised you brought that up, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. Um, yeah, I, I, had a little, I had a little text to warn me that I might get asked about that this morning. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah something, obviously. I think it's a big thing with my wife. That's, that's a big passion of hers. She does a lot for animal charity. So yeah, that's just my way of showing support. And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he handled that great, didn't he? Uh, my way of showing support. I'm not doing it for the chickens. I'm doing it for my wife. Yeah, the Joe Allen cock up. Allen walking on eggshells. Allen, a shell of his former self. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll gather the links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Baby, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.